Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. Today we have a great episode planned for you with a great guest, Phyllis Bennis. Phyllis Bennis is an expert on the Middle East. She is an expert on U.S. foreign policy, on militarism, and on the United Nations. She has written and edited 11 books, including five primers, at least on the Middle East. And I'm going to recommend one of them to you in particular, since we've been doing so much talking about Israel-Palestine in these last episodes. That book is Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a Primer, which is now in its seventh edition. It's incredibly easy to read. It's in a Q&A format, and it'll really get you up to speed. Phyllis Bennis is also a fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies, where she directs the New Internationalism Project, which works on a whole host of issues surrounding the Middle East and United Nations. But why did I invite her here today? I invited her here today because, as I said, we've been talking a lot on the show recently about Israel-Palestine. We've been talking about the activist Issa Amro, who is a leading Palestinian nonviolent activist in the West Bank, who is currently on trial before an Israeli military court and before a Palestinian authority court, in both cases for his political activities. So first and foremost, I wanted to call upon Phyllis Bennis because I think she can really help us see how a situation like this and how the broader situation in Israel-Palestine connects to the rest of the world and connects back to the United States. And I think that points to a larger question that we really have to ask, which is just, why care about this part of the world? Why sink so much time into learning about it and possibly working on it? So those are the big questions I wanted to talk to her about, but Another reason I wanted to have her on is that we're getting a lot of questions from our audience, which is so great. And I hope that you'll keep sending in questions. I can't promise that we'll always have Phyllis Bennis here to answer them, but this time, right now, she is here to answer them. So let's take advantage of that. In this episode, we're going to focus on really one question that stems directly from our most recent work in this series. As I said, we've been talking a lot about Israel-Palestine and talking about the case of Palestinian activist Issa Amro. But to do that, to do justice to that story, we've been spending a lot of time filling in the context of the military occupation of the West Bank. In fact, I'd say the show is almost 50% context, and I think it needs to be that way. It's important when you're talking about a case like this, about a Palestinian civilian brought up on charges before an Israeli military court, to slow down and really look at the overarching system of occupation that makes that possible, and to talk about what it's like to live under military occupation what it's like to live surrounded by checkpoints, surrounded by watchtowers and by soldiers that are not your soldiers. But a question I'm getting from people who keep hearing us hammering this context of occupation, occupation, occupation is, wait, why do you keep saying this word occupation? What makes this thing you're talking about an occupation? And then there are about five more questions that flow from this central question pretty consistently, and I'm going to ask them all in this episode. So again, our guest here who is answering my questions is Middle East expert Phyllis Bennis, and I'm going to ask her questions related to why do people keep saying that the Palestinian territories are under occupation? And I started with just why is this such a persistent question? Why is this an occupation? And 
Here's what she said. Occupation implies temporary. This has been the longest military occupation in history. So, you know, it's not an unreasonable question to say, why do you keep calling it an occupation when it's gone on for this long? And this kind of permanent occupation is a different phenomenon. Some of the UN special rapporteurs on human rights in the occupied territories, uh, John Dugard, Richard Falk, some of the others have raised that, whether there should be a new category in international law. That's a separate violation when we start talking about permanent military occupation. So it's a reasonable thing to ask. So what does make it an occupation? Well, what makes it an occupation is the fact that Palestinians in the West Bank, as well as Gaza, because Gaza is still occupied, even though the soldiers and the settlers pulled out of the territory, in international law, occupation is defined not by how many soldiers happen to be around at any given moment, but what controls the territory. And in this case, the Israeli military is what controls the West Bank. They do that both within it and surrounding it. They have a wall and they have soldiers surrounding it. In Gaza, it's in the form of a siege where they surround the strip. It's also a wall. Uh, so it's slightly different forms of occupation. But the key point is that Palestinians do not have control over their own land, over their own entry, you know, who goes in and who doesn't get in, who goes out and who is not allowed out, is not controlled by the Palestinian Authority or by Hamas in Gaza. It's controlled by the Israeli military. The skies are not controlled by the Palestinians, so they can't have an airport. The seas off their coast are not controlled by the Palestinians. Their, their seaport is under military control. So they have a certain kind of municipal power. They can pay the teachers, pick up the garbage, uh, hand out permits in, in Gaza for things like building. In the West Bank, they can't even do that. You know, building for Palestinians, say in occupied East Jerusalem, is a long contested thing where sometimes houses will be demolished under the spurious claim that they didn't have a permit which is technically true because more than 99.5% of all permits are denied. Most of them are just ignored. They don't, it takes years before they even get an answer, but the answers are more than 99% denied. So why would anybody sort of wait to build on, in their little community on land that they own? That doesn't give them the right to build. Right? And yet we hear constantly about the Israelis building new settlements, expanding existing settlements, taking more land to build more settlements. So this is what occupation looks like. The other side of it at the human level is that Palestinians are subject to a different set of laws than Israelis who live in the same territory. So if we look at the West Bank, you have Israeli settlers, about 650,000 of them, uh, between the West Bank and East Jerusalem, who are all violating international law simply by getting out of bed in the morning because they are living on illegally expropriated land. Now, why do we say it's illegal? Well, there's a host of international laws. One of them says that it's illegal to seize and hold territory by force. That's the, the bottom line of it. But there's other specific ones. In the Geneva Conventions, it says that it's illegal for an occupying power, Israel, to transfer any of its own population to the occupied territory. That's what the Israeli settlers are. They have been transferred from their home country to an occupied territory. That's illegal. So what does that mean? It means that the settlers 
are accountable to Israeli civilian law. Palestinians are subjected to Israeli military law. It's an entirely different legal system. So if you take, for example, the question of children, you know, we understand juvenile law, juvenile criminal law, for instance, to be something, we know it doesn't work all the time in this country, particularly for black and brown kids. But in theory, juvenile law in the US is designed to be operating in the interest of the child. It's not supposed to be punitive. It's not even supposed to be a punishment. It's supposed to be what will help the child respond to whatever we think was going on when she or he acted out or did whatever they did that we think was, was criminal, was, was a bad thing. So let's take two 12-year-olds in the West Bank. One of them is a settler kid, born and raised in an Israeli settlement. That's the only life they've known, right? This is their, this is their world. And one day they go out with some of their friends and they start throwing rocks at a car. You know, 12-year-olds do that kind of stuff, right? It's not great, but they do it. So that Israeli kid, assuming they're caught, the police will go to the parents. With the parents, the kid may or may not be taken for questioning. There may or may not be a hearing in a juvenile court where the parents are present. Nobody talks to the kid without the parents being present. Nobody talks to the kid without a lawyer being present. Everything is done in their own language, of course, that's a given. And whatever the punishment is or isn't is based on this notion, just like here, of what is in the best interest of the child, as it should be. That's how a child should be treated. Now, let's look at the Palestinian kid who lives in the village next door to that settlement. Also born and raised in the occupied West Bank, have never known anything other than Israeli occupation. And one day, she goes out with her friends and throws rocks at a car and is seen by soldiers. So what happens? The soldiers ask around, figure out who was that kid. They don't pick up the kid right then because according to UNICEF, the UN Children's Agency, deliberately maximizing the level of fear and terror for the child and the entire family and the entire village. Most children are arrested at two o'clock in the morning. Soldiers go to their house, bang down the doors, grab the child. The parents are not told where the child is being taken, let alone be allowed to go with them. The soldiers are speaking in Hebrew with a few words of Arabic, maybe. The child is terrorized. The child is taken, first of all, a violation of international law, taken across the border, usually into Israel, out of the occupied territories, into Israel, another violation questioned without any legal advice or parents being present. Completely outrageous. In most cases, the children are terrorized. Some of them have said that they were physically beaten, others psychologically terrorized. And the system under which they are taken is a military detention system. Israel is the only country in the world that has a military juvenile detention system run by the military, for children as young as 12. So you look at the difference between what happens to a 12-year-old who lives in this village versus what happens to a 12-year-old who lives in that settlement, where the distinction is, are they, it's by religion, are they Jewish or not? It's by language, do they speak Hebrew or do they speak Arabic? Those things determine which legal system they're judged under. 
And when you have two legal systems in the same territory, under the control of the same government, in this case, the government of Israel that controls both, there's a name for that. It's called apartheid. Not because it's just like South Africa. It's not a lot like South Africa at all. But both South Africa under apartheid and Israel under today's apartheid are similar in that they violate the terms of the international covenant against the crime of apartheid. That's another whole separate legal reality. So when we talk about what is occupation, that's one of the characteristics of this particular occupation. It's known as apartheid. I want to break in and remind you that you're listening to Talking Human Rights, and our guest right now is Phyllis Bennis. Phyllis Bennis is an expert on the Middle East, on U.S. foreign policy, and on militarism. She is a fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies, where she heads the New Internationalism Project and brings decades of experience and expertise to tackling a number of Middle East issues. We've been discussing a listener question regarding the West Bank, the question of why do people keep saying that it's under occupation? Why do you call it that instead of something else? So this next question I asked, I'm actually going to reword for you here because I used a little lingo that in retrospect could be confusing. The question is about the status of the Palestinian Authority and about what contributes to confusion about that status. What I said specifically is that when you're entering the West Bank from Israel, when you're crossing the wall built by the Israeli military to get into, say, Bethlehem, you will often see a sign that says, you are entering the Palestinian Authority. I also made reference when I was asking this question to the fact that this sign also sometimes says that Israelis are not allowed past this point. And this is where the lingo comes in. I qualified that this goes for checkpoints where you are entering Area A, where the Palestinian Authority has a presence, unlike Area C, which is most of the West Bank, which is under direct Israeli military control, where there is no Palestinian Authority to speak of, and where Israeli citizens can come and go as they please, because that's where the settlements are. So she'll talk about those distinctions here. But the point is that, to me, signs like these are really confusing, because they lead you to think that when you're crossing this this wall or this checkpoint that you're entering a state or something like a state. And I've met many Israelis who believe that in the West Bank, the Palestinians do have a state or something like a state. There is something like a government. It's just that it's not a government. It's something like a government. That's exactly the right term. You know, you can create something, as Netanyahu said recently, he talked about the entity that, under certain circumstances, if the Palestinians conceded all remaining power that they have, which is very little, they would have an entity, and as he put it, Trump could call it a state. It's, you know, and it's like, call it what you want, it's not a state, but you wanna call it a state? Fine, call it a state. It's kind of the equivalent of saying, if this was going on in the US that people were fighting for independence in New York City and say, well, that's not gonna happen. But you know, we'll give you Newark and you can call it New York. You can call it what you want, but Newark is not New York. You can call an entity a state, that doesn't make it a state if it doesn't have sovereignty, control of its borders, control of its airspace, 
the right to determine whether or not to have a military, all those things, they make up what is a state. So when you talk about you know, what happens when you go into, you referenced area A, these are one of the complicated terms of the Oslo Agreement from 1994 that divided the West Bank. Now the West Bank is tiny, tiny, tiny. The West Bank is only 22% of historic Palestine. All of the rest of historic Palestine, the 78%, remains under full Israeli control without anybody even talking about whether that should change. So when we talk about, you know, the Palestinians were offered 60%, hey, that's a lot, right? Well, it's 60% of 22%. When the Palestinians recognized Israel and accepted this idea of a two-state solution in 1988, it was an enormous concession. I was at that meeting of the Palestine National Congress in, in Algiers in 1988 when that decision was made. And it was greeted around the world as, ah, oh, this great celebration, Israel and Palestine are now talking to each other. And what wasn't recognized was what a concession this was. The Palestinians made that concession thinking that they were gonna get a state on the rest of the 22%. But instead what happened in the, I won't go through the whole sordid history, but what finally happened with what is known as the Oslo process, the Oslo Accords, the Oslo Agreements, whatever. You know, it's one of those cities that takes on the name of the agreements signed there. It divided the West Bank further into areas A, B, and C. So area A, basically the Palestinian towns, the six major towns throughout the West Bank, they're considered part of area A. They're not connected to each other. They're little spots within this territory, right? If, it was, if the territory was Swiss cheese, those would be six holes in the cheese, okay? In theory, in those towns, the Palestinian Authority has complete control, including security control. In practice, that's not even true. In practice, Israeli soldiers do carry out raids inside the towns, and the towns are surrounded by checkpoints and blockages and Israeli soldiers. Area, and that's only 18% of the entire West Bank, which is 22%, right? So we're talking a tiny little bit of area, disconnected, non-contiguous, six little towns. Area B, which is a little more than that, it's about 20%. And area B is divided officially, so that officially the Palestinians have the right to kind of run their own affairs, again, pick up the garbage, pay the teachers, things like that. But Israel officially has security control, which means the soldiers can and do occupy the territory all the time. These are smaller villages scattered around. The 60% of the West Bank, Area C, is under complete ordinary military occupation. The way France was under military occupation during World War II, or East Timor was under Indonesian occupation for so many years. Military occupation is military occupation. And in Area C, it's that kind of old-fashioned, traditional military occupation where the military occupiers, the Israeli military, controls everything, right? So the signs that exist in the, in the border crossing between, that is on the road between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, you would think you're at an airport really going from one country to another. Before these checkpoints and, and, and walls were built, this was a 10 minute, 12 minute drive from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, right? We used to do it three or four times a day. 
right? Just going back and forth to visit somebody, to pick up something. It was, you know, it was like if you lived in Washington, D.C., it would be like going from Adams Morgan to Shaw, the next neighborhood. You know, it takes about 10, 20 minutes. Now it can be a day. It's like going through an airport security system, particularly at night, if you're going through it alone. It's a terrifying experience. You see lights blinking. A red light means stop. And if you don't stop, you hear a voice yelling at you, hopefully in your own language, although there's no guarantee of that, to stop. You see a green light, you can go, but then you can't really figure out what to do. There's an, a metal door. You don't know how it opens. And you don't know where the voices are. You don't see anyone. And then finally, you realize that up above you on a catwalk, there are soldiers with their guns pointed down at you while you're moving through this maze like a mouse in a military maze. So there's this sense of illusion that Palestinians, for example, who have to cross every day between the occupied territories and Israel itself for work, very few get permits these days, but those who do have to cross that border twice a day and it can take hours waiting in line there, one at a time, having their documents checked Somebody's documents aren't quite in order, they're missing something, the whole line stops. And you can be there for two hours, in the rain, in the heat. Old people who, you know, people try to push the old people to the front of the line, and sometimes the soldiers don't let them. It's, it's a horrific situation. And for Palestinians living there, this is day-to-day -day reality. In Gaza, the additional part is that the entire strip is under siege which means that Israel controls not only all the people who go in and out, but everything. You know, if Gazans want to export the small amounts of tomatoes and strawberries they're able to grow, every truckload has to be approved ahead of time by the Israelis, paperwork has to be done. And then at the, air, at the checkpoints, they have to go through it all. Sometimes the, the produce spoils in the heat, waiting to cross. People, people spoil waiting to cross. People die waiting to get a permit to get out of Gaza into the West Bank to get treatment for cancer because there's no chemotherapy available in Gaza. There's certainly no radiation available in Gaza. So even trying to go from one part of the Palestinian territory, the Gaza Strip, to the other part of the Palestinian territory, the West Bank, you're under the control of Israel. You have to cross Israeli territory on their terms, which means they decide who deserves to cross. And too often that, that means who deserves to live? Who deserves to die? Sometimes a child with a life-threatening illness will be granted a permit and their parents will not be allowed to go with them. So the Red Cross will come and take them. But imagine what that means for parents watching their deathly ill child being taken away from them, knowing that it's going to be weeks or months, if they're lucky, before they see their child again, who will be in a hospital without them. Imagine. That's what military occupation looks like. Another question that kind of can branch off of this that I've, I've heard this, this question a lot is, well, why don't the Palestinians have their own hospitals? Why, why do they need Israel's hospitals? And why don't they just build that stuff? Well, they would. If they were allowed to have an economy that was independent and could raise the money to pay for a hospital, there are hospitals in the West Bank. There are hospitals in Gaza. They are not well equipped enough to have the kind of advanced technology that you need for heart surgery, for cancer treatment, etc. The hospitals are among the most important social enterprises in 
both the West Bank and Gaza. When I was traveling in the occupied territories a lot during the first uprising, the first intifada in the late 80s and early 90s, whenever, whatever town we would go to, we'd head first to the hospital to find out the news. That's where you found out what was happening that day. Were there clashes? Was there something else going on? So there are hospitals. They're just not able to import what they need. In Gaza, of course, after the three Israeli assaults in 2008 and 9, then again in 2012, and most deadly in 2014, when 2,200 Palestinians, overwhelmingly civilians, 500 of them children, were killed by Israeli bombardments, the hospitals were among the targets. They were among the buildings that were destroyed. And what tends to happen in Gaza, when Israel flies their bombers in, destroys the, the hospitals, destroys the schools, the European Union eventually puts money in and they rebuild them. And then Israel comes back and does it again. That happened three times in those wars. The problem is the Europeans are big on charity. They're just not very big on doing anything to prevent Israel from doing it again. So that's the problem that you face. We saw this in uh, Iraq under sanctions between the two Iraq wars, between 1991 and 2003. Yes, there were hospitals. And before 1991, Iraqi healthcare systems were among the best in the Arab world. It's where a lot of wealthy Arabs from all over the region would go if they needed brain surgery or heart surgery, because Iraqi surgeons were among the best trained, the hospitals were among the best equipped, that's where you went. That was destroyed under sanctions. The sanctions prohibited access to medical journals. You know, this was pre-internet, so you couldn't just put it up on the web for people to get. When I traveled in Iraq with a group of congressional staff in 1999, I guess it was, we met with faculty at the medical school who were desperate for articles on new uh, treatment options, they were operating off of what they had learned 10 years earlier because that was when their access to the world's medical journals simply stopped. The same thing happens in, in Gaza. There's wonderful, trained, committed doctors, but they don't have access to the training, to the equipment. We know now that, for example, in, in the last two years, particularly in 2018 when it began, the, the Great March of Return in Gaza, which was a weekly protest of, of Gazans marching peacefully towards the fence that the Israelis had built uh, around the edge of Gaza. They never had violence. It was always just marching as a sign of wanting to go back to where they came from, wanting to return to where they were born. And the Israelis announced ahead of time they intended to violate international law. There was no secret about it. They sent sharpshooters every week, every week, every week. Thousands were shot, hundreds were killed. And I think the numbers were over 200 amputations had to be carried out, mainly of legs of young men. The fear is that in the next year or two years, somewhere near 2000 more amputations are going to be required because even though the doctors were able to stabilize these terribly damaged, deliberately targeted legs, some arms, but mainly legs, the equipment and capacity they had was not able to do the kind of permanent repair that would allow these legs to function for a lifetime among these young men. Instead, to prevent the inevitable infections that are coming back and cannot be dealt with, sepsis, serious infections, they're going to face the choice of amputation or death. And the United Nations issued a report, oh, I think some eight or 10 months ago, 
fearing that the amputation epidemic was going to be unstoppable across Gaza because of the number of people who had been treated in a basic way, but did not have access to the kind of advanced, very technical treatment that was the only way that they would be able to save their legs. So we're looking at a whole generation of young people in Gaza facing amputation as the inevitable necessity to save their life. Uh, I wrote an article about it, starting with the story of a friend of mine here in the US, uh, who's not Palestinian, but is a, a longtime supporter of Palestinian rights, who is a double amputee for medical reasons. And after many years after the medical crisis that he faced, made a decision to amputate his leg and then his, his arm to deal with the constant medical crises that he was facing, the same kind that are facing people in Gaza. But he had this choice. He knew he was going to get the most advanced prosthetics that exist in the world. The kids in the neighborhood call him the bionic man. He's got three different bionic legs, one for walking, one for standing and being around, and one for running. It's amazing. The kids in Gaza, they're not going to have that. They're not going to have that. And that's one of the, the horrific realities of what it means to be in a poor country, in a country living under occupation, in a country that has never been allowed to develop the kind of technological expertise that we take for granted here. Wow. Well, I want to thank our guest, Phyllis Bennis, for being here with us today. We have another episode queued up right after this one, also with Phyllis Bennis, in which we zero in on the question of why care about Israel-Palestine? What makes this place so important? How do issues there connect with the rest of the world and connect back to the United States. But before I leave you, I want to let you know that we are loading some resources to the site to supplement this episode. We've got the UN reporting on the amputation epidemic in Gaza mentioned earlier. And we've got the article our guest Phyllis Bennis wrote on that amputation epidemic in May of 2019. And Going back in time a bit, we also have an interview that she gave in 1999, right after returning from the trip she mentioned, in which she led a delegation of U.S. congressional staffers to assess the impact of almost a decade of U.N. sanctions against Iraq. It's a great interview. It's a heartbreaking interview, and I learned so much listening to it. So I hope you'll go to our site and check all of that out. Until next time, this has been Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. Our guest has been Phyllis Bennis. You can find the show on the web at www.talkinghumanrights.com.